Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast. I'm Julie Tesh, and I'm the president and CEO at the Center for Rural Policy and Development. And we are a private, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based in rural Minnesota, where we are dedicated to providing data-driven research on rural issues to help our policymakers make more informed decisions affecting the rural people and places of our state. Today, I am talking with a CRPD board member, Martha Castagnon, and she works for the Immigrant Law Center, and she's an accredited representative and legal assistant based out of Moorhead. Welcome to you, Martha. Thank you. Well, thank you for welcoming me and having me here. Absolutely. So, you know, we've been doing this podcast now for a couple of years. I think we're on, yeah, we're on season three, which is pretty exciting. And, and I wanted this year to really start talking about you know, our immigrant workforce and, and things that we can be doing in our community to be welcoming and to be helpful. And, you know, uh, the population of Minnesota, of especially rural Minnesota, is not increasing right now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we hear a lot about people talking about what can we be doing to increase our workforce. And obviously looking at uh, good immigration is one of those things. So, why don't we start out talking about the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, and if you could just give our listeners a background on, on what they do. Okay, so the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota um, began way back in 1996. So we've been in existence for, for about 25 years now. Um, and it was mainly based in St. Paul, and they had the sometime... Um, Later on, they opened offices in Worthington, Minnesota, and in Austin, Minnesota, because they saw the increase of the packing plants, uh, hiring immigrants, and there were questions that were coming up, such as citizenship and renewal of green cards and other immigration-related issues that were coming up. At that same time, they were also getting calls from Northwest Minnesota. So they always had it in their minds for many years to open up a site along the Minnesota-North Dakota border. Um, But as many nonprofits, um, you know, funding was always an issue. They were finally able to get a grant um, and they opened up an office here in Moorhead, Minnesota um, for the Immigrant Law Center, Center. So now we have several offices throughout the state. And so, I'm an accreditor representative. Um, Before that, I worked with the Legal Services um, Office of Minnesota that assisted um, migrant farm workers. And some of the migrant farm workers had um, issues with immigration or wanted to become um, citizens. And so because of that experience I had, I was able to get this this, um, job position with the Immigrant Law Center. So uh, as I'm, as Julie introduced me, I'm an accredited representative, which means that I'm like a legal assistant. Um, so I do a lot of the intakes, I f- fill out the forms, I give people information, but I'm not an attorney. So I cannot do any type of work in front of an immigration judge. 
um, but I can sign off on certain kinds of immigration forms, such as renewal of green cards, citizenship. Um, we also work with um, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault that sometimes they qualify for a certain kind of visa or other victims of crime, certain kinds of crime. Um, and we help them with that process in order to get their legal status. So the Moorhead office has been open since October of 2015. And I handle all of the Northwest Minnesota, some of central Minnesota. So I have clients all the way from Park Rapids. Um, I've had clients from Oslo, Minnesota, Alexandria, Lake Prairie, uh, Morris, so I cover a very wide area, Detroit Lakes. Um, so I cover a very wide area. I work on the cases and it's always satisfying when a client is granted a green card or they're granted citizenship. So it's very satisfying work. That's great. And you, you said you're not a lawyer, but I would think you're probably the glue that keeps everything together <laughs> <laughs> with all of the paperwork. I know talking with you over the couple of years, you're you're always making connections and then making sure things are completed and thorough. So mm -hmm. uh, I think what you do is be beyond important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, there's, and there's certain clients that there's nothing that we can do anything for them. And I tell them that, you know, I don't give them false, false hopes that they're going to get status when I know in reality that they can't. So for whatever right. reasons. So what is, what is the ethnic background of people that you're helping? I know people probably think of, you know, the Latino population, but what, what backgrounds are you, are you typically helping? Um, well, you know, the change of the face of Minnesota is changing. Um, we're seeing more and more different, different communities, different immigrant communities. Um, there's a lot of Latino um, there's a lot of, I'm seeing more people that are from way Southern Mexico, Guatemala, um, El Salvador, um, Venezuela, Honduras. Um, I've seen, I've had clients that are from Peru and from Colombia. And um, I've also seen a lot of Somali, a lot of um, Iraqi Kurdish backgrounds. I've got clients from Nepal. Um, and so, and from Ghana, uh, Liberia, um, quite a variety of different countries from um, Africa, and then a lot of the Iraqi. Um, I haven't had any Afghanistan yet, but I'm, I'm assuming that I'll get some sooner or later. Um, I haven't had any from Ukraine, um, because it also, also depends on the funding that we have or the grants that the Moorhead office um, get that sometimes I can't help certain communities. But that is a changing face that I'm seeing is a lot more um, um, immigrant communities from the different African countries and from the Middle East. Now, are those more immigrants or are those more seeking you know, refugee status? Most of them came in, um, the ones that are coming in like from the African countries, and from the Middle East um, and some from Nepal are usually coming in as refugees. So after they have been in the United States after a year under refugee status, they can then apply for their green card. And that's where I come in and I help them with that process. 
And eventually after five years of living in the United States, they can apply for citizenship. And I also help them with that process. Great. So just because I know a lot of people like to think they know a lot about immigration and I'm one of them, but I don't know a lot. So let's, let's, let's just go over some basics. So say somebody comes from Iraq as a refugee and they're here for a year Mm -hmm. and then they can, when, when they're here for that year, are they able to work? What, what do they what do they do? Um, yeah, so, so usually refugees are granted employment authorization. Um, that's normally good for, for two years. Um, right now they're granting them for two years. So during that time, that one year time frame, they can uh, work, they can live and work in the United States. They cannot travel. Um, there are some that have gotten like special travel permits that they can get if there's an emergency back home. Um, but they can live and work here in the United States. Then after a year has passed or more, then they can apply for the application to get their green card. Um, And with that application, um, they have to submit like an updated medical record, um, provide information as to where they have lived and worked for the past year or so, and um, information on spouses and children and information of their parents. Um, And then it will ask questions about good moral character, for example. Um, You know, have they ever been arrested? Have they ever been deported before? Did they ever work with a terrorist organization? And that that application is the same for everybody, regardless of how they came into the United States. It's called an I-485. Immigration has a number for each type of application. So this one is called the application to apply for permanent residence or adjust status. Um, And it's the I-485. And um, it has a lot of questions that they ask. So that's submitted. And um, then it's just a matter of waiting for them to get their green card. So. And how, I know it's hard to say averages, but on average, how, how long does that take? It could be from a year and a half to two years. Okay. And they can still work during that time? Yes. Okay. And I, 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 it would be so interesting. You know, I, I think of, we're so fortunate in the United States and in Minnesota, you know, I don't have to uproot my family because mm-hmm. I'm in fear for my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see the stories in it it really brings a tear to your eye because you have to wonder about the desperation that people have that they're willing to cross thousands of miles on foot mm-hmm. to get somewhere. Um, when when people, when refugees or immigrants do come to this country, what services are available for them? So, you know, if they want to get a job, you know, I can't imagine not speaking the language and trying to find a job. What What types of services are there for them? See, that's an area that I'm not very familiar with because we don't work with the immigrants when they first come into the country. It's usually like a year later. But from what I know is that they're usually working with a refugee resettlement program. Um, And so the refugee resettlement program helps them to settle into, like, for example, an apartment. Um, Takes that they have... um, staff that will take them to different places like, for example, the workforce centers to sign up for jobs, 
um, to the ESL um, programs that are out there so they can start learning basic English. Um, so they have staff that will take them or show them the different processes that are out there for them to get the services that they need. Great. That's good to hear. You know, it's one of those things I just don't think of. Yeah. Haven't really had to think of before. Um, I come from a background in agriculture. And so we talk a lot about H2A visas. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of those in, in the Red River Valley area? There's an increase of H2 visas, um, and it's only not just in agricultural, but even some of the construction, the landscaping companies um, are hiring more H2 workers. Um, I have seen it um, where they have brought in, um, in the eggs sector for the planting and the harvesting of certain, of certain crops. Um, I think there were honeybee workers also that were brought in um, someplace up on the in Polk County. Um, so yeah, they do bring them in here. I have heard of them out in North Dakota and here in Minnesota. And what what is the difference between an H two visa and an another visa type of visa? There's there's H two one B and I think there's an H two A. So the H two A's I believe, um, and I might be wrong. Um, only work like on the construction, the landscaping, that kind. And then there's others that are only supposed to do agricultural work. Okay. And is that is that a temporary status? Yes. If I, if I remember it, correctly? Yes. It doesn't give them permanent residence. It doesn't give them a green card. It just gives them authorization to come into the United States and work. And then when that um, contract is done, they have to go back to their home country. Okay. And they can renew that, I believe, yes. every year. Um, I yeah. know in the southern states, there's a lot more H-2A visas just yeah. because it's a shorter distance to travel. Yes. Interesting. And I want to I want our listeners to hear about your background and, and why this work is so important to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but just, you know, I you shared your story before and it's I don't know, in, in this day and age, just getting done with an election and getting done with everything, um, you know, we talk about needing to understand and wanting to hear from, learn about other people. And I just think your story and your family's story is so, so unique and so beautiful. And then we, and then, you know, you end up on our board and you end up knowing our board chair's brother, who's a priest, you know, it's just <laughs> such a small world how this all happens, but my story. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let me begin. Um, you know, most people think that I either was born in Texas or Mexico and I'm not, I was actually born here, right here in this little town of Moorhead, Minnesota. And across the street is a building I was born in, which was St. Ansgar hospital. But um, my parents met and married um, in this little town called Comstock, Minnesota. That's where they met. Um, and it's kind of interesting because my dad was born in Arizona, but grew up in Mexico. And my mom was born in Mexico. So her father worked as a bracero. And those who are not familiar with, with the term bracero, back in World War II and when the Korean War was being fought, um, 
there were many men that were drafted into the army to go fight. So they needed workers here to work in the in the in the crops. And my grandfather would come into the United States and work um, as as a bracero, and then he would go back home. And my mom would say that he would always bring um, flour, white flour, to make tortillas, and it was considered such a luxury. Um, because they always ate corn tortillas. But anyways, um, my mom <clears throat> in the 1950s uh, was able to get her green card because at the time that my grandfather passed away, he had submitted um, immigration papers for them to come in. And so my mom got her status that way. So she was coming up with one of her cousins. Um, and she talked. I remember she would talk about traveling in the deep south in the 1950s and she had never been discriminated against when she lived in Mexico and to be discriminated in the United States. It was something very new to her, uh, but she said it was hard. She couldn't understand why they were not allowed to use, um, they had to go to the back door to use the restroom or whatever, but it was just, it was just different. Um, but when she was coming up here, she came up here for several years and then her cousin had a brother uh, who my dad met. My dad, as a young man, took his birth certificate, went to the consulate in Guadalajara, Mexico, and showed the U.S. consulate officers that he was a U.S. citizen, and they gave him his passport. So he made his way up north, um, landed in this little town called Crystal City, Texas, and um, met Raul Rodriguez. And Raul Rodriguez was also my mom's cousin. And so he would travel up to work with um, my mom's cousin, my mom with his, her, with Raul's younger brother, her older brother, and uh, that's how they met. Um, and so <clears throat> the, there were two farmers that were really impressed with my dad's work. Um, my dad was a very hard worker. Um, and there was this farmer named Ted Pete who hired my dad um, and Ted Pete, had a friend by the name of Douglas Sillers who used to be a former state legislature. And so um, Doug Sillers also offered my dad work. And so my parents married in October of 1958. Um, so that year that my parents married, they stayed up here all year round. And to my mom, it was like the end of the world because she did not know a word of English. My dad hardly knew any English. Um, and my mom said she would look out the window and it's it was to her like the end of the world with all that snow. Um, so after that, um, all of us six kids were born here in Moorhead, Minnesota. My dad was very insistent that all of us be born up here for whatever reason. Um, but there were years that we would stay up here all year round and we lived on a little farm just south of Moorhead. And there were other years that we would go down to Texas for the winter. And we lived in the town of Crystal City, Texas. And um, that's when we would go visit my dad's family, my mom's family. Um, and so all of us began school in this little town called Sabin, Minnesota. So when I started school, I didn't know any English. All I knew was hi, bye, and okay. You know, one syllable. <laughs> so, um, I was held back. So I was in first grade for two years. And then my sister, when I was in my second year of first grade, she was with me and she also got held back. 
um, because we didn't know any English. So um, after that, all my brothers and sisters, they would hear my sister and I speak English. So they picked it up. And um, the farmer's wife that we worked for, um, she had been a school teacher at one point. And I'll never forget when I must have been like eight years old. We were living on the farm and she knocked on the door and she had an armload of books. And she said, you and your sister read these books. And in three weeks, the bookmobile will be back and you can grab more books. My sisters and I just, we read and we read and we read. Mm -hmm. And it we developed a love for reading um, because of her. Also, my mom liked to read, but she read in Spanish. Sure. Um, my dad also, I remember they would get the newspaper. The farmer would give them the, the old newspapers and they would review them. I mean, my mom would look at them, um, trying to pick up words, trying to learn. Um, and it was it was kind of interesting. Um, after my dad passed away, he had all these papers and I found his GED diploma where he had gone to school um, here in he enrolled in classes, night classes to study English. Wow. Um, so it was really interesting to find that. And you didn't know that. I didn't, you know, I was just a kid, but I remember, sure. I think he would go either on during the winter um, to classes in the afternoon to learn, you know, basic English and stuff. So it was just fascinating. Um, there were several years that we went to Wisconsin to pick cucumbers, which was the hardest work. Um, I hated it more than working in sugar beet fields. And that's another thing. Every year we worked the sugar beet fields. So while my class, classmates from Mohead High were usually um, up to the lakes or vacationing somewhere, I was working in the sugar beet fields. Oh boy. Um, but in Wisconsin, it was really hard work. And I remember uh, my father um, actually had to sign a work permit for me to work because in and that was in 1972 so my birthday's in September and he had to sign a work permit because the story was that there had been an accident or a kid had been killed on the on the in one of the fields and um he had to be 13 years old on up to work in the fields and because I was going to be turning 13 in September he had to sign this work permit and I keep it in my office because it's a constant reminder to me of where I've been and where I am now and to never forget those, you know, where I come from. Um, it keeps me in tune and it helps me to, um, and the clients also, I deeply, deeply, they keep me rooted of where I come from, you know, and not to forget my language, my culture, um, how to treat people with dignity and respect. To me, that is just, number one for me is treating my clients well. And I'm going to get all teary-eyed. I know. I'm just, I'm like, gosh, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> um, but all of us kids, we graduated from Moorhead High. We went to Moorhead High. Um, my parents, in 1974, my dad, um, his kidneys failed and he got sick. So we never went back to Texas to live. Um, so all of us graduated from Moorhead High here. It wasn't until, and my dad had to go on dialysis. So at, at that time in the 1970s, um, the only dialysis clinic that was nearby was in Fargo. It wasn't that far from my dad to drive because down in Texas, the closest place was in San Antonio. 
San Antonio from Crystal City is, you know, over an hour drive, um, close to two hours. It was going to be too hard for him. So we never went back. And it wasn't until the mid-1980s that a dialysis clinic was opened in Eagle Pass, Texas, which is, right, it's a border town, not that far from Crystal City. And so my dad signed up. By that time, I was already married, having kids. So I never went back to Texas. Um, some of my siblings went back to Texas to be with mom and dad. But to them, they were so used to living up here that mm -hmm. none of them wanted to live down there. I only have one brother who's down there right now, but most of us are up here in Minnesota with one sister in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So um, that was our, our life. And um, I worked with Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services with the, with the migrant legal services component for many years. And it was working with the migrant farm workers and some of the cases that they um, had. And that also helped me keep grounded as to where I come from and where I am now, you know, but my clients, um, I really enjoy working with them. They're very appreciative of the work that we do um, and understanding the issues that they're, they're facing, you know, Absolutely. for many of the of the clients that are coming in as refugees, um, there's a culture shock, you know, between mom and dad and the younger kids who are going to school here. It's different here, they're seeing different things. It's hard for the parents to understand that. And I can understand that dynamic because I remember seeing that with my parents, you know. Um, and one example I can give is, is um, um, when my sister one of my sisters is I decided to go live at the dorms and to my mom it was like no proper young lady ever goes and lives at the dorms <laughs> why would you do that you know it's it, it's different from where sometimes families would send a young girl off to college but she was living with an aunt you know or something mm -hmm. and this was like no not living at the dorms it was just an interesting dynamic you know? <laughs> how how, how do you think things have changed over the years from when you were a young woman to, I know you have children, you know, things that they're facing now, how has that evolved and progressed? I think for me, when I was going to school here, there were very little people of color. You know, um, mm -hmm. I think the most that you saw were Hispanic families. Most, and even then it wasn't, there weren't as many Hispanic families as there is now, but back then we kind of knew each other by name, you know. Um, now I see more diversity in the schools and I think that's great. I think it's great um, because this rural area of Minnesota, it's changing, you know, and as hundreds of years ago, there were um, Norwegian and German settlers and Polish settlers um, they all came with different languages. They all, I'm sure, had their differences in some of their culture and their language and miscommunication, misunderstandings, but somehow it worked out. And it's and I see the same happening. That Yeah, there's misunderstandings. There's a fear of the unknown and people are afraid. Um, you know, just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. It's just mm -hmm. different. And when you're open to learning about the differences, then you have a better understanding of the different cultures out there. Absolutely. So um, I think more and more kids 
um, I see groups of kids hanging out together. And I think it's great when I see the diversity and the friendships mm-hmm. um, and learning about each other's culture. Um, I think that's great. That's, that's wonderful. You know, and, and talking about it's different, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. I think that that's like, needs to be the theme for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Because yeah. people are scared. And I think we have to give credit to that. But it's working through that and, and meeting people and learning about people and their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it takes work. Yeah. yeah. It takes work to meet, to meet new people. So what are your, what do your children think of like your parents? So like their grandparents, what do they ever talk about them or, you know, their work in the past? Um, my kids have a deep respect for their grandma and for abuelo and abuela. Both my parents have passed away. So, mm-hmm. but if there's one thing that my sons have told me is that the very hard work ethic they have, they said, they tell me, we got it from you, mom, because we saw, and we saw you always working and we always saw grandma and grandpa, you know, well, grandpa couldn't because he, he was sick but they always saw their grandma working, you know, and they learned that it was better to be working than to be sitting back idle (laughs) and not doing anything. Um, So they have a deep respect for their grandma and grandpa, you know, even though they have, because of the, their age differences, maybe sometimes they didn't agree with some stuff, um, (laughs) especially when it came to music. Oh yes. You know, (laughs) Um, but they had a deep respect for their grandma and grandpa. That's wonderful. I can, I can appreciate that. I grew up on a dairy farm with my grandparents and always working. Yeah. And if they weren't working, they were helping other people. Yeah. And I'm sure your parents were the same way. Yeah. And yeah, my mom and dad were, um, and I think this is where my civic duty comes in, but they were always helping other people. And I remember, um, when I was a teenager, we lived out in Sabin. So there was this family um, that would come up as migrant farm workers and they lived on a farm where the water, the drinking water was horrible. Um, So they came to the house one day, they would see my mom and dad at Spanish mass and learn that they lived in Sabin. And so the farm they lived there, they lived at was not that far away from Sabin. So they came and asked mom and dad if they could uh, grab get jugs of drinking water that's what they wanted for was drinking water um, and to be able to cook with it so they did um, you know and mom and dad never charged them anything for the water yeah yeah go ahead take the water and um, well at the end of the season before they went back they had butchered um, a lamb and they came and brought a big lamb chop to to mom and dad and that was their way of showing appreciation, you know, they wanted to give mom and dad money and then mom and dad refused it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they, they said, okay, but they came back a couple of days later and they brought them that lamb, you know, and that's where, you know, mom and dad would always say, you know, we may have it bad, but there's others that have it worse. Mm -hmm. So if you can do what you can to help them, help them. Absolutely. You know, so, um, Sometimes I hear people complaining about the weather, how cold it is, <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's cold, but I, I stop and think, okay, I've got a roof over my head. I have gas in my car. I have food in my 
home. I have a job. You know, I have a way to heat my home. So I'm not, it's not so bad. Right. Right. It's, it's all bad. about perspective. It's all about perspective. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and just helping each other out. And like you said previously, just about dignity, mm-hmm. helping people find dignity, whether it's in their work or their living conditions or yes. but just providing dignity for people of all walks of life. So, well, we're getting to the end of our time and I want to thank you for being on our podcast today. And I also want to thank you for being on our board. I know, gosh, how long have you been on our board now? Three years, three years. And I know you took a leap of faith on us, on me. I had just started and you're like, what is this? What am I doing? (laughs) So I so appreciate you taking that leap of faith. I know my staff and I have learned a lot from you and we're so grateful for the connections you've given us on our research topics. And we're really looking forward to expanding more of our research topics in talking about other populations across Minnesota so that we are very representative of our research is representative of the whole of Minnesota. So thank you for that. We really, well, really thank appreciate you, it. Julian Kelly for having me on here. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, Martha, before you go, why don't you uh, let everyone know the website for the Immigration Law Center in case they want to learn more about the organization? It is www. ILCM.org. And on there is a vast wealth of information about the services we provide, different immigration topics, um, our, a list of our supporters. If you want to donate, there's a way to donate on there. Um, so, yes, you know, www.ilcm.org. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Martha. We really appreciate it. And happy Thanksgiving. And I, I want to try your family stuffing sometime. That sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the center of everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere.